to you, Father, we come in the great name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, the one who has provided for us eternal life. And Lord, we're so grateful to you that we can derive our strength each and every day from your great hand. And Lord, it is your intention that we learn to trust in you and to walk in you and to recognize you as our good heavenly Father. Jesus as our great intercessor and Savior. The Spirit of God is the one who enables us to live each day for the glory of your name. Father, I pray that the Word of God again will be quick and powerful, that it will uh, penetrate to the very core of our souls, that you will cause us to be those who live by the Word of God and not by our own ideas nor by the direction of the world. Father, that we might be examples to the world, even as you called Israel to be a witness to the pagan world of, of several thousand years ago, so you have called us to be a witness to our equally pagan world today. Father, I pray that your spirit will be working throughout this campus this morning, touching lives and changing us according to your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 14th chapter of Numbers, Numbers chapter 14. I'd like to read the first uh, four verses to begin with. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Israel has sent out the 12 spies. Moses sent out the spies. God had put his imprimatur on that uh, decision. And the spies made their 40-day journey through the land all the way up into what today we know as Lebanon. And they had come back with a report of the coastal plains, of the hill country, and of the Jordan Valley a report of all that the land had to give, the fruit of the land. Uh, you remember they carried one clump of grapes on a pole between two of them because the cluster was so large that they even named the little valley Eshkol, meaning cluster, uh, because of the greatness of that cluster they brought back. But they also brought back word that the land was impossible to conquer because it was filled with military, Touristic peoples inside of great stone-walled cities and giants were in the land. So this is the response, as we read in these first four verses of the chapter. This is the beginning of the response. Now, the Hebrews of that day didn't have these scriptures before them, but they had the track record that God had given to his people for several thousand years prior to this moment. The scripture tells us over and over again that the just shall live by faith. That without faith it is impossible to please God. You know, when they really let that sink in, without faith we cannot please God. 
And then the scripture which says that whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. There at the oasis of Kadesh, surrounded by the wilderness of Paran, but in an area where lots of water was flowing and, and certainly there were trees around and they were encamped in an area where the water was adequate, where the manna fell every day, uh, fell every morning. Uh, and here they were faced with this situation and the Israelites displayed at this moment the greatest poverty of faith they had yet displayed since they left Egypt. And we read in this passage that all night they wept and bemoaned their fate. All night. Can you imagine Moses and Aaron listening to this weeping and wailing all night long of these people of God? They had totally and completely forgotten what God had just done for them over the past year and a half. You know, he had miraculously brought them out of Egypt. He had miraculously done wonderful things for them in the wilderness. He provided them manna every day. He spoke to them from the mountain. He gave them the law. He gave them the directions for the establishment of the tabernacle and the whole tabernacle worship. I mean, it was obvious that God was there in power. He had worked miracles unheard of in the course of history to that moment. Miracles that had shocked the peoples of Egypt and all those around who heard of these miracles. It had created fear in their hearts, and yet Israel did not believe. God had demonstrated his love. God had demonstrated his patience. God had demonstrated his mercy. God had demonstrated his justice. God had demonstrated omnipotence, omniscience. What more did they need? More did they need. And yet, here, just the word of ten mere men. We can't do it. And they throw a year and a half of God's track record out the window. They balked at God's commands. They would not believe and they would not obey. Not only that, they turned against Moses. This man who had interceded for them over and over again when they were about to catch it, they turned against him. And then in this passage, we have one of the most devastating accusations against God ever made. In verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become, become a plunder. <laughs> and, and you know, what, what is it they say here? They cried, we would rather have died in Egypt. We would even rather have died in this wilderness than to face Canaan and the challenge of conquering this land. Now that makes no sense at all. It is absolutely irrational, which proves its source. The source of the fear, of course, I mean, there, there was a natural fear. I mean, everybody fears a, 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 a challenge, a, particularly a very... A serious challenge. Everyone fears something that is totally new. They've never had an experience in it before. We, you know, there's a, there's a natural fear there. But that this fear had become so irrational proves that its source was from the evil one. As I've highlighted before, Satan and his minions had nowhere else in the world to be at this moment. They were right there in the wilderness of Paran. And they were kicking up a storm here. 
uh, trying to convince Israel that to believe God would be a foolish thing to do, just as Satan had done to Adam and Eve in the garden. And so these people responded with irrational uh, response. What difference does it make whether you die in Egypt or the wilderness or Canaan? If you're dead, you're dead. Wherever you died. And the way they word it, it's as if they had all, you know, they wish they were already dead. But that makes, to me, I don't know, maybe it makes sense to someone. It makes no sense to me at all. If you're already dead, you don't even have the, this, this opportunity in front of you. Matthew Henry makes a very enlightening statement here. He says, they looked forward with a groundless despair, taking it for granted that if they went on, they must fall by the sword. I mean, what that demonstrates is absolutely not even the smallest fleck of faith. If we go on, we will die by the sword. They don't even say, if we go on, maybe we'll die by the sword. I mean, this is the implication in a way that he's drawing from this. And he goes on and he says, Here is a most wicked, blasphemous reflection upon God himself, as if he brought them hither on purpose that their wives and children should be a prey. That that was God's reason. He brought them all the way from Egypt, did all this for them to kill them in Canaan. To kill these little kids and kill the wives in Canaan. I mean, can you imagine any greater accusation against the Almighty? I mean, that is a very... Uh, what is, is happening is you're challenging the very nature of God himself, that he is good. God calls his people to live by faith. God, uh, Satan calls people to live by fear. You know, if we could just burn that in our minds. God calls us to live by faith. Satan calls us to live by fear. So if fear dominates in our hearts, if fear dominates in our minds, it is not from God. It is from the evil one. And if we yield to it, we're yielding to the evil one. And we're not yielding to God. At Kadesh Barnea, 3,500 years ago, there was one of the greatest spiritual battles ever fought on the face of this planet. And it seems that Satan won the day. You know, as you, as you just look at it at face value, it, see, it seems as if Satan won the day. Because as you read back in the first verse here, it says, then all the congregation, doesn't even say some amongst them, it says all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And, and in verse 2 it says, all the sons of Israel grumbled. And the whole congregation said, would that we had died in the wilderness. And we're not talking about a little, uh, you know, just a little strain of, of disbelief here. We're talking about the entire congregation given over to disbelief. And as far as we can tell, the reason I say it looks like Satan won here, because as far as we can tell, there were only five people, actually only four named, but we assume Miriam was, was probably there uh, on, on the right side, that there were only five people who were on God's side. And on Satan's side were over two million people shaking their fists and cursing and saying we ought to go back to the land of Egypt. You've been a fool, Moses, and we ought to kill you. And, you know, if we had been there, I think we'd have been very discouraged looking at that scene. And, and, and if we put ourselves in Moses and Aaron's place, in the place of Joshua and Caleb or Miriam, I mean, how disheartening must it have been? You know, if any of them had the slightest tendency towards depression, I mean, it would have been triggered big time. 
at, uh, at this moment. So total was the rebellion that they said, we want a new leader and we're going to go back to Egypt. Now can you imagine Go back to Egypt. Not only was that flying directly in the face of all that they had done for nearly a year and a half, but what will the Egyptians say? I mean, this is eating crow big time. Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregations of the congregation of the sons of Israel. You know, it, it probably should say, and Moses and Aaron stood on a hilltop and called down fire and brimstone on the congregation. But no, they fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceeding good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only, and you can you just hear the pain and the cry in their voices, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then, well, this sends chills up and down your spine. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. We have people here in this passage who demonstrate Christ's likeness. Only short of Christ himself, really. Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb. I mean, this was a critical moment. They stood there and the entire congregation was against them. I've never stood in front of a howling mob, you know, that was totally opposed to me by myself. But, you know, I can kind of put myself there by imagination and understand that that would not have been a very desirable position to be in, you know. I mean, after all they had been through, all that Moses and Aaron have been through, and even Joshua, and now Caleb, all, all that they have been through, uh, could, they could have easily have thrown up their hands in despair and asked God to torch the whole crew. Fry them, Lord. That's what they deserve. I mean, after all, wasn't that what some of the disciples said to the Lord? You know, the sons of Boanerges? <sighs> Shall we call fire from heaven down on these people, Lord? Moses and Aaron sure had more reason to do it than those disciples did. Can you imagine how difficult it was for Moses here? Because two years before, Moses had stood at the burning bush. And God said to Moses, I am calling you to lead Israel out of Egypt in the land of Canaan. And Moses said, Lord, I can't do it. And Moses could say right now, God, I told you so. <laughs> And he could have pointed to this as an ultimate rebellion, as absolute proof that he was right. But notice the character of Moses. This man has been changed. And you know, this is the nature of God working in his church, changing us corporately, changing us individually, so that we aren't now what we used to be, and in the future we won't be what we are now. We will be trustingly more Christ-like. And what we have here 
is a Moses and an Aaron so filled with God himself that they fall on their knees and cry out to God on behalf of these very people who momentarily are going to call for them to be stoned. These are the great intercessors. And Joshua and Caleb play their role in it. They tear their clothes in demonstration of their great concern and and distress over this issue. And they call out to the people and remind them of the bounty of the land. Remember the good of the land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's full of good food. It's right there for us to take. And God will give those enemies into our hands. He has taken their protection from them. You know, it's the whole idea of one, you know, thousands will fall at your right hand and ten thousands will flee, as the psalmist says. And and this is the whole idea here. The armies will flee before you. And and later we see this happening, of course, in the nation of Israel through its its history. There will be times when 300 of Gideon will chase away 50,000 Midianites. You know, I mean, ridiculous odds. But not when God is on your side. And yet they are not willing to even try. The people were right, of course. They were right in saying we cannot take this land in our own strength was what they were implying. We cannot take this land. We don't have the discipline. We don't have the trained manpower. We don't have the resources. We try to conquer this land. We'll be defeated. We we don't have the tanks and the airplanes, you know, and everything else that we need to do this. And that was true. They didn't. But God wasn't asking them to take the land by their strength. He was asking them to let him take the land through them. Let me take the land through you. You will be my instrument. You will be my channel by which I accomplish my purpose. And and to me, this is one of the most powerful messages of all Scripture, that God has not called you and me individually. He has not called the church to win the world to Christ. He has called the church and you and me individually to be his channels through which he will win the world. He will bring conviction. He will bring salvation. We don't have to do it. We just have to be willing instruments in his hands to let him speak through our mouths and live him, his life through our bodies. That is why Paul says that we're to give our bodies as a living sacrifice so that people can see Christ in us because Christ in us is the hope of glory. It's the hope of eternal life. God is going to win the victory. It cannot be any other way because he is the almighty one. But we have to simply be faithful. We we have to obey his word. We have to learn the importance of faith and prayer. Faith and prayer. Why is it Satan makes such big war on faith and prayer? Why does Satan try to cause people to do things that will discredit their lifestyle? Because he knows that an honest, God-filled lifestyle is a powerful witness. He he tries to prevent prayer as much as he can. You know, he wants people to think prayer meetings not important, uh, praying together, praying for people, intercession. It's not important. God's going to do what he wants to do anyway, so why bother praying? He doesn't want us to pray because... He knows that's how God accomplishes his purposes. So we can really look around and see what it is that the church is discouraged from doing and know that's exactly what the church should be doing because the enemy doesn't want us to do it. And he, of course, didn't want Israel to do it, and they didn't. Dave. 
just going to mention verse 9. It's intriguing to me that in the midst of that spiritual conflict, uh, they make the statement, their protection is gone, that the Lord is with you. Mm-hmm. The realization, perhaps, that it is a spiritual struggle, and that even in the presence of the demonic forces there, that the faith that they have to say that this is already dealt with. Uh, not looking at the, at the physical struggle, right. saying that their protection is gone. Yeah. And that somehow there was that, that element very obviously there. Yeah. I think Joshua and Caleb were two men who had come to the place of believing that God's will will prevail no matter how powerful the enemy may demonstrate himself to be. And that is something that the church universal needs to be constantly aware of, that God will have the victory. It doesn't really matter how dark it may seem. I mean, we live in a very dark age, don't we? We talk about the Middle Ages being the Dark Ages, or at least a portion being the Dark Ages. I mean, we live in as, as dark an age today, especially spiritually. To, to me, it is so amazing. If you get Christianity Today, you know that um, there, in, in the most recent issue, there is a long article about um, a man by the name of Behe, a scientist by the name, a biochemist by the name of Behe, who's written a book called Darwin's Black Box in which he basically proves biochemically that there is a basis in the cell structure which could not have evolved by chance. It just could not have. It's, there's too many things that are interdependent upon each other that would have to have evolved all simultaneously, which was, of course, impossible for it to happen by chance. Therefore, it requires intelligent design. What's interesting is there are scientists who are writing back that, well, we haven't looked at this long enough. We may yet be able to find a way by which chance could have brought this. And he says, we've been doing this for 40 years. (laughs) And, you know, we live in a dark age where people are committed to not to believe, no matter what evidence you show them. They don't want to believe, and they will not believe, even if you put it in front of their faces. And that is, of course, why Abraham said to the man who had died and gone to the bad side of uh, Hades that he wanted to go back, you know, and tell his brothers so they won't come here. And he says, even if somebody appeared from the dead, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they aren't going to believe you. And, you know, that's the story of the day and age in which we live. In fact, I was reading a passage. I, maybe I can even find it again here in uh, Isaiah. In Isaiah 47:10, it says, And you felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. And that's what the scientists today who reject any concept of God or intelligent design are saying. I am, and there's no one beside me. I'm the Lord of my life. I'll live it the way I want, and I'll answer to no one. That is the real reason behind things like the theory of evolution because it has been proven to be scientifically untenable by many recently especially and yet others will not leave it alone because they don't want to be held to someone that they must answer to and and God through Isaiah spelled exactly why here no one sees me I do what I want no one sees me I'm accountable to no one but he says your wisdom and your knowledge have deluded you have deluded you. And that is really the truth. And of course, that's what happened to Israel here, too. They could not see past the, the situation that they felt uh, was in front of them. 
and they sought no answer to their dilemma. What a contrast exists in this passage. Four, four men stood alone. Four men believed God. Four men were willing to die for God and die even for Israel. Four men alone interceded for that nation. Four men out of two and a half million were obedient. Now, I didn't get out my calculator, but that's a very tiny percentage. Were these people who had been so miraculously blessed and delivered by God for the previous 16 months, were they convicted of their rebellion? Were they shamed by the stout-heartedness and faith of these four? Well, they may have been convicted in their hearts, but they were not convicted to repent. Because what we read is, Stone them! Stone those four guys! Get them out of our way so we can go back to Egypt. Stone them! Stone Moses? The man who'd gone up on the mountain and brought down the testimony of God? The man whom God had used to build the whole worship system that they had in their midst? The only one who could go to the tabernacle and stand in God's blazing presence? You're going to stone him? It makes you wonder as to the rationality of human beings. You know, homo sapien, thinking man. They aren't thinking. They're just responding on an emotional level. This is fight or flight, you know. No faith. Actually, there are three possibilities, you know, fight, flight, faith. <laughs> and God wants us to have the faith part. This reminded me as, uh, as I was studying this of a situation that existed at the beginning of the church. And, and you know it, but let's turn to Acts chapter 7. The situation between Moses and... Uh, between the people and Moses and Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, really was almost identical to the situation that Stephen faced there 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago, before the leadership of Israel. Stephen has preached this, this wonderful sermon in his defense and, and pointing out the truths of what God had taught his people throughout the Old Testament. And now it says in verse 51... You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. It's obvious here that God through His Spirit is speaking through this man, Stephen, and He is cutting them no slack. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? It's a lot easier than listing all those you did, you know. And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. I mean, when you read a passage like that, it gives you a slight taste of what it's going to be like to stand before God Almighty at the great white throne judgment. It's going to be a horrifying time for those who never believed in Jesus. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they repented in sackcloth and ashes, and they asked Stephen to forgive them, right? Not quite. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. 
being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed upon him with one impulse. And that impulse was not from God, as you can well believe. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he expired. Now, they would have done the same thing to Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb had God not prevented it. God allowed Stephen to die because God had something to say to the church and to Israel through the death of Stephen. But God was not finished with Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. He had more for them to do. I mean, they would die one day. We're all going to die one day. But he had more for them to do, and so God did not allow them to be stoned. If God had not intervened, they would have been. God suddenly shown, showed up. I mean, this was the proverbial last straw. And at the critical moment, the glory of God appeared in the tabernacle. Whoosh! You know, if you can just visualize it. I mean, nobody in Israel could not be aware that God was there at the tabernacle. God is long-suffering. God is merciful. God is patient. But there is a time when God will no longer tolerate blatant disobedience and disrespect from those he has so wonderfully and powerfully delivered over and over again. As is, was true in the case of Miriam and, and, and Aaron, if there was anybody perceptive amongst Israel, when the glory of God appeared, they should have said in their hearts, uh-oh, I don't know if there's anybody that perceptive to realize that they had pushed God a little bit too far. Let's look at verse 11 of Numbers 14, verses 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? You get the feeling of that God word, spurn God. Spurn God. That's why God sent the flood on the earth. People had spurned him. How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Signs and wonders are wonderful. Signs and wonders have occurred. God has used signs and wonders. But they are not the answer to building a believing church. Even as it says here in this passage, how long will they not believe despite the signs which I have performed in their midst? God had absolutely every moral right to fry the whole nation right on the spot without any further ado, without any further explanation, without any further imploring. God could have just I mean, it would have been one smoldering area. But what does he do? He says, Moses, come here. Called Moses into his presence to explain to Moses what he intended to do. Why bother? 
Well, he calls Moses into his presence, I think, for two reasons. As he had already said to Miriam and to Aaron, Moses is faithful in all of my household. To him I speak mouth to mouth. God had committed himself to this man who had committed himself to him, and God would not do anything without first informing Moses. God did the same thing with Abraham, if you will remember. The man who was called the friend of God, as God was about to torch Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, I think I will tell Abraham about this and see what Abraham will do. And he went, as you know, and spoke to Abraham about his intentions to destroy those evil cities. He didn't have to talk to Abraham, but he committed himself to talk to Abraham. Secondly, Moses was called into his presence because Moses was already imploring God on behalf of Israel. He was already doing it, just as God had inspired him to do. When God went to Abraham, God knew exactly what Abraham was going to do because God inspired him to do it, to intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh God, if there are 50 righteous, will you spare the city? I will spare the city. Are there 45, 40, 30, all the way down to 10? But God did not inspire him to go past 10 because God had already ordained those cities would die and he would rescue those who were of faith who were unfortunately very few, really only Lot, whose faith was not exactly a pillar of, of confidence, you know, and, and his two daughters whose faith was pretty weak, obviously. But God had inspired Abraham to intercede, and God had inspired Moses to intercede and Moses will intercede on behalf of Israel, and because of that intercession, God will save all of those under the age of 20. They will not die in the desert. They will not fall under the condemnation of God at this moment. They will be delivered. This was God's intent, and that was the fruit of Moses' intercession. But it was God's intercession through Moses. God carefully informed Moses that his patience had come to an end and that he would wipe out Israel and that he would raise up a great nation through Moses. Now, this is not his intent, but that is what he is saying to Moses as a possible scenario to see what Moses will say. It's very important that we understand here, and this is where it really drives me nuts when you, when you read about some of these liberal scholars. They, they will look at this passage and they say, look, at God lost his cool here. God blew a cork. Uh, you know, God, God had to be calmed down by Moses. Now, 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 God, just, just, just be calm, be careful, you know. I mean, what a, what a blasphemous interpretation of this passage. God knew what Moses was going to say because it is God who put it in Moses' mouth to say. It was God who had caused Moses to become an intercessor. And I know that's really what we need to always remember. You and I, when we pray to God, we seek his will to pray through us, and we pray according to his will because it's what he wants to do that we want to see done. We can't convince God to change his mind. I mean, that's absurd. The will of God is unchangeable. 
I mean, another passage in Isaiah, God says that. I mean, who can counteract the will of God? No one. But, but God will work out his will through us as we intercede, and, and that's the role we play as intercessors. And all of us can play that role. Cert, certain people certainly are gifted at intercession in, in, through one way or the other, but we all can be intercessors to a degree uh, that God calls us. And it's probably a lot more of a degree than we're accustomed to. Paul informs us in Romans 7.18 that nothing good dwells in my flesh. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, right? Nothing good dwells in my flesh. There, there are many people who feel insulted that they cannot do good. That to, Some people are, are put off by the idea that all the glory must go to God. They want some of the glory too. After all, I cooperated with God. See the halo? I cooperated with God. Yeah, I have done this for God. There is nothing good that dwells in my flesh. In my flesh, I cannot do anything good. Even if I help that, that person who needs help in an obvious moment, it is not me who is doing it. If it is done with the right attitude, it's God who's doing it. If it's me who's doing it, it's done, being done for my own pride. And that is not part of God's eternal plan. If at any time something of eternal value is accomplished through you or through me, it is not being done by us, but it is being done by the indwelling Holy Spirit through us. And the sooner we really come, come to grips with that and are satisfied with that, that we don't need any of the glory. If God gets the glory, that should be the greatest thrill in our lives because he should be our everything. In Philippians 2.13 we read, For it is God who is at work in you and me, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. And that should be our highest joy, our greatest desire, that he is working his good pleasure through us. I mean, because then we know we are a good and faithful servant. And if we still have that inner desire to, to get credit, then we aren't yet to the place that God needs us to be so that he can really work his will through us. We're not yet broken to the place where, where God can accomplish all that he would because we still are saying in, in, you know, to, to some degree that uh, I am, as what's-her-name did down there on the beach, what was it? I am God, I am God, I am God, you know, whatever. I, you know, we have to understand and believe that Moses felt the same way God did. You know, how long will this people not believe despite all these great miracles? I mean, Moses was probably hitting his head saying, what is going on here? I have seen all these miracles. What's wrong with these people? What's wrong with them? And he knew God could wipe them out. I mean, after all, he'd already burned a bunch of them up around the edge of a camp and he had sent you know, the, all the quail, and, and they died as they ate the quail, you know, I don't know, E. coli or whatever it was. You know, God sent this stuff uh, into Israel, and he knew God could wipe them completely out. And he probably thought, you want to recreate the nation through me? I've only got two boys. You know, that's going to be quite a task, God. It's going to be a little while <laughs> before you get two and a half million out of my two kids, you know. But he didn't doubt God. 
He believed God could do it. And certainly there was a degree to which it was a flattering proposal. Because Moses would then become the Israel, you might say. Because instead of Israel, Jacob being the father of this great nation, it would all come right on back down to Moses. And it would start all over there. But Moses didn't want that. Well, we don't have time to really talk about what, what the presentation Moses gave to God there, or God gave to himself through Moses, uh, which is really the way it was. But next week we'll, we'll look at the reasoning that Moses used, which God put in his head, why God couldn't do this or shouldn't do this. And uh, it's, really, it's really fascinating, and it really helps us to understand that the central issue of history is the glory of God. And it really comes forth in, in this passage of Scripture.